Thanks for joining us for this message from Awakened Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. Good to be with you guys today. If you don't know who I am, my name is Nate, and I get to serve here as the lead pastor of Awakened Church. And one of the ways that I serve you is by uh, bringing God's Word to you. So if you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to be closing out the first chapter, and I'm excited about that. So um, we are continuing our series, Little by Little, Finding Identity in Christ. And uh, we're breaking up this book little by little. We're taking verse by verse through this. And I hope that as we're breaking this book up, my prayer has been that you would be finding your identity in Christ. The more that we understand who God is, my prayer has been that we will understand who we are in Christ. And so uh, I hope that you're getting a lot out of this, that you're, you're learning a lot in this. And uh, so next week we'll be in chapter two. So I'm excited about that as well. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, at our family, at our dinner table, like dinner is one of my favorite meals. Like it, it is a fun time at the dinner table in our house. And I don't know what it's like for you, um, but dinner time in our house is, is a fun time. And what we've tried to do is we try to make it a little more interactive. And so what we do with our kids is we play a few games at dinner time. And so one of the games that we play at dinner time is uh, a game that we call Mad Libs. And you probably have heard this game. It's a made-up game. Our kids love trying to come up with words and hear the funny story and how it comes out. In fact, they love it so much that it's now got its own theme song. And uh, it's, uh, it's another Mad Lib Monday. That's what we sing at our house. And so they love it. They love having, being able to play that. When I get home on Monday, they start singing it right away. They love Mad Lib Mondays. And then uh, there's another game my middle son, Asher, made up. It's called Ask Me a Question. And he says it just like that, too. He gets really loud about asking him a question. And this is any question that you want to ask, you can ask them. And you can ask me. No question is off the table. Uh, I made up another game called Sad, Mad, and Glad. And what we try to do there is we uh, try to get out from our kids, hey, what made you sad today? What made you mad today? What made you glad today? Sometimes we'd say, what made you laugh today? You know, we kind of keep going because, you know, sometimes with boys, how was your day? I don't know. Good. You know, what did you do? I don't know. What did you learn? I don't know. Like sometimes it's really hard to kind of get some information out of them. And so uh, this is a really easy way to do that. Uh, another game that's probably their all-time favorite game, the game they love the most that we play, is Would You Rather. And so I thought right now we could play a little Would You Rather right now. Would you rather be a dog or a cat? Okay, for everybody who just said cat, we're praying for you. We'll anoint you with oil. <laughs> We pray that your soul will be delivered uh, because dog is the best. In fact, last night I told Brody, you know, dog spelt backwards is God. And he was like, what? Like this was like, he told, <laughs> he told me, he was like, that's so profound. Like it just blew his little mind just that that's how it was. So he loved that one. Would you rather eat tacos for the rest of your life or pizza? Tacos, tacos. That's what our house is very divided. I love tacos. Uh, another question is, would you want the weather to be warm or cold? Warm. <laughs> now I'll ask you in the summertime, you'll probably say cold, okay? So <laughs> I'm sorry, Tennessee sometimes feels like you're living in someone's mouth. So in the summertime, so let, <laughs> let that sink in for a minute. It's hot, humid, disgusting. 
<laughs> My apologies. <laughs> That's bonus content there. Okay, so... Uh, today, would you rather have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers win or the Kansas City Chiefs? <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see about that. Uh, you know, I asked my kids this other question. I said, would you rather lose your sight or one of the other four senses? And then they said they would rather lose all their other four senses. And I think we could all agree with that. In fact, I read a poll recently that said most Americans want to keep their sight. They would hate to lose their sight because the reality, I think, for a lot of us would be that the idea of losing our sight would be terrifying. We would hate the idea of losing our sight because so many experiences in our life would be dramatically different if we couldn't see And so today, what we're going to see, maybe a little pun intended there, in these set of verses, verses 15 through 23, is that Paul pauses his praise to God that he's been going over. Over the last three, uh, verses 3 through 14, he pauses his praise that we've been talking about and going over, he pauses it to talk about prayer. And he prays something for us because he knows that simply explaining all of these theological ideas in verses 3 through 14 aren't going to be enough unless God gives us spiritual sight. Because if he doesn't give us spiritual sight, we're going to be blind to what God really wants to reveal to us and show us. And so Paul begins his prayer and he begins it in verse 15. He says, for this reason, and basically he's That's a way of summarizing everything he's saying in verses 3 through 14. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, I don't know if you caught this or not, but Paul prays a little differently than what you and I probably pray about. I don't know what drives you most in your prayers. Uh, Maybe for you, it's when life feels overwhelming and uh, you've done all that you can do and you've tried everything else and you don't know what else to do, so you pray. Or maybe you're like me when you want something selfishly, you pray a little bit and hoping that God answers that prayer. But not Paul. Paul is telling him that he thinks of them regularly and whenever he thinks of them, he gets really excited and he thanks God for them. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ The Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge. Circle that, underline that, highlight that. We'll get back to it here in just a minute. In the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Paul is praying that we would have the eyes of our heart opened. To have the spirit of God reveal to us what's just been explained in our minds. And ultimately what Paul is praying for us is that we would know him better. Now you see, it's not enough to know facts. You have to feel the reality of them in your heart. And so I want to hang out on this word knowledge for just a few minutes here, because this is the one time in our English language where I think uh, it really fails us. Because in the Greek, there's two words that talk about knowledge. There's oida and there's gnosko. Now oida is, uh, in the Greek, it refers to knowing facts and knowing data. For example, I know that blue whales eat half a million calories in one bite. Now, maybe they should lay off of that, and then they wouldn't be the biggest mammal in the ocean or animal, whatever it is, but, you know, that's, I know that. I know the only letter not found in any state name is the letter Q. You'll never find it anywhere else. I know that you can lose up to 30% of your taste buds when you hit the cruising altitude in your flight. 
I know all kinds of other movie trivia, TV show trivia, 90s, 2000 trivia. Like, if there's trivia, I'm pretty good at playing those games. I know a lot of oida, useless facts and knowledge. (laughs) But then there's gnosko. And gnosko means this. And that's the word Paul's using here when he says knowledge. Gnosko means a personal knowledge or a felt knowledge gained through experience. So I might oida, I might know that Krispy Kreme donuts are made out of sugar and baby angel dust. Like I might know that. (laughs) But it's a complete opposite thing. I I gnosko, I know it when I taste one and I put one in my mouth. I oida, I knew back in 2011 that Jen was about to give birth to our very first son. But I gnosko, I knew it when I held him in my arms. I oida, I knew that uh, riding my skateboard down this really long hill in southern New Mexico was a bad idea. But I gnosko, I knew it was a bad idea when I fell off of that skateboard and scraped up most of my body, right? Like, I, then that's when I knew it was a bad idea. But my point is this, that there's a big difference between what we sometimes think of as knowledge and what Paul is talking about here in this passage, Paul is praying here that we would know God, not just in an intellectual sense, but that in a very real and practical, that we would feel God. You see, it's possible to be around Jesus for a long time and never really know him. Think about the religious leaders of the day. They were the, the, the Pharisees. They were people who knew so much about the coming Messiah. They knew about him, but when they were standing face to face with him, they didn't know him at all. Think about Judas. One of the 12 disciples, he spent three years with Jesus. Judas didn't start out as a hypocrite. He was interested in Jesus and wanted to be around Jesus. Judas wanted Jesus to be a part of his life. But the eyes of his heart were never opened to see the true glory of Jesus. And so his knowledge of Jesus never turned into a personal love and trust. See, I've heard it said this way. Almost all of your spiritual problems come from a lack of sight. Because what you know with your mind has never been felt with your heart. See, maybe you're here today and you feel a little spiritually dry. Maybe you feel like something's missing, that there should be something more. See, what you need to know is this. What you know here in your head needs to be felt and experienced and come alive in your heart. And some of you here today are maybe a little bored with Jesus. There's no passion in your life. You're just kind of going through the motions. You don't really read your Bible anymore. You don't really pray anymore. You kind of come to church when it's convenient and when it works the most for you. You don't engage in worship. You don't engage in the message. You've just kind of gotten bored with Jesus. So how do you fix that? Is it new facts about Jesus that's going to make him more interesting? See, Jesus isn't like the celebrities in Hollywood who need to constantly be reinventing themselves and coming up with new ideas for themselves so that they can become relevant and stay relevant. Jesus isn't like that. He's ever fascinating and ever satisfying. And maybe you're here today and you just simply need to have the eyes of your heart open to the truth that you already know. You need, to, you need God to open the eyes of who Jesus is and who he is for you. Your head can be full of knowledge, but your heart can feel bankrupt right now. I hope that today, that through Paul's prayer, you would have the eyes of your heart open to what Jesus really wants to do in us and through us and the realities that God has for us. And so what are those realities? Paul gives us four of them. 
And the first one is this, hope found nowhere else. Looking at the second half of verse 18, it says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, when Paul says the word hope here, he isn't talking about a hope that's wishful thinking. He's not talking about something that he wants to have happen, but he's not really sure that it is going to happen. For example, here in a couple hours, we're going to watch the Super Bowl. And there are some of you very loudly and proudly are now jumping on a bandwagon of the Kansas City Chiefs because you're hoping they're going to win because you don't want to see Tom Brady win another Super Bowl. And so in a few hours here, you're going to be cheering. You're going to say, I hope that they win. I mean, they might win. I'm not really sure that it's going to happen. See, that's a wishful thinking. That's a wishful kind of hope. But Paul is talking about a different kind of hope. When he says that, he says he has hope that Tom Brady's going to win because he is the GOAT, okay? That's what he's talking about. No, he's talking. This is the kind of hope that he has. He's expecting something to happen. See, we could say it this way, that Paul's hope is a sure thing, not a maybe thing. Paul has a biblical kind of hope. And so what is biblical hope? Biblical hope is that God will unite all things under Jesus, that the work that he started in you, he will be faithful to complete, that everything that we've been promised here in Ephesians chapter one, everything, all all of our inheritance that we've been promised will come alive, that we have a hope that we were chosen, adopted. We have a hope that we were forgiven, that we were redeemed. And we have a hope that one day everything that is wrong with this world, everything that is unjust will be gone. And that's the hope that we have. That's biblical hope. The confidence of that hope is supposed to reshape how we see everything in life. See, what you believe about the future shapes how you live in the present. What you believe about the future shapes, reshapes, shapes how you live in the present. Let me illustrate it this way. So, dad of three boys, let me tell you, the house can get messy. And the boys love their Nerf guns. They love their dress-up clothes. And so they run around the house with their clothes, their dress-up clothes on, and sometimes they come off and they're all over the the house. Sometimes we tell them, take all this gunfighting outside, and so they take it out back. And then Dawson, my youngest son, you know, he he looks for something, duckus maybe, and so what does he do? He dumps all of his toys out on the floor and he goes, well, it's not there. So he takes the next one and he dumps all the toys and he's like, it's not there. You know, he keeps looking for it. Parents, you know the struggle is real. Like sometimes it's hard to keep the house clean. And so there's times where I have to say, all right, boys, time to clean up. And that's when the excuses start to flow. That's when it's like, well, that's not my mess. Dawson made that mess. Asher made that mess. Brody made that mess. Oh, I didn't do that. My legs hurt. My arms hurt. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Uh, You know, I need a break. Can I take a nap? Can you take a nap? Like, is it that bad right now? Like, that's what they do. The excuses flow. But listen, parents, I found a workaround. You can take note of this, modify it as you need to. But I said, all right, boys, if you could clean up this house in one hour, then you can have one hour of video game time. And you better believe that puts a pep in their step. They are in there. They're working together. They're trying to figure out how to clean up faster so that they can maybe even get bonus time, as they call it. And so they're all working together, getting everything put back together. And here's the point. They were in the same position They had to clean their rooms. But what changed is now they have a hope that they didn't have before. They have a hope that there's more to their life 
than just cleaning up their room. And the same is true for us today. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian today, if we live our lives as if there is nothing to look forward to outside of this life, then we have no hope. But if we live our lives from the standpoint that we know where we are going, that we know our inheritance, that we know who's running this whole thing, who's got this whole world under control, if we have a hope that we've been redeemed and forgiven, then it should change how we go about living our life. And Paul wants us to see and feel that hope. Because godly hope changes what we believe about the future and it shapes how we live in the present. Here's the second thing Paul prays that the eyes of our heart would be open to, and that is our value to God. Second half of verse 18 says, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, when I read this verse at first, it caught me a little off guard. Because Paul here isn't talking about our inheritance. He says his inheritance. And who's the his in this sentence? It's God. It's God's inheritance. Nowhere else in the entire Bible does it talk about God's inheritance. It talks about people's inheritance and what we're going to inherit, but it never talks about God's inheritance. In the Old Testament, the Bible talks about how the Israelites will inherit the land. Basically, what Paul's been talking about for the first half of uh, chapter one is our inheritance, what we are going to get, the riches that we have in God. And so the Bible does talk about inheritance all the time, but that's not what Paul is saying here. He says, I hope that the eyes of your heart are actually open to the fact that God counts you as his inheritance. Seems a little odd though, right? What do you get, the God who has everything? The God who literally spoke everything into existence? The answer is you. A bunch of broken, messed up people, sinful people, trying to figure out how to live this life. The only thing that God didn't have that he was willing to go to the cross for was you. And this, sh- and this thought should just like blow our minds right now. Completely, our minds should be on the ground. The God who literally could have everything and could just completely wipe the slate clean of all of creation if he wanted to. And quite frankly, it might be a little easier if that's what he did. But he didn't wipe the slate clean. He didn't have a giant do-over. What he did was he set his love on you and was willing to submit to the pain and the humiliation of the cross just so that he could be with you forever. The God who created the heavens and the earth, that cost him nothing. That was all for free. But to save you and me, it cost him his very life. And Paul is like, if you could only see how valuable you are to God, that what Jesus did on the cross, God gained you in the process. See, Paul calls us his glorious inheritance. How humbling is that to be called God's inheritance? Now, if you're like me, when you hear that, that you're God's glorious inheritance, you might kind of laugh at that at first. You might think, well, that's a little unbelievable. I mean, I'll try to work myself into becoming more valuable to God. But as it is right now, as it stands, I am anything but that. I'm more like the poor man's version of a glorious inheritance. I'm not that glorious. 
And I think sometimes we can think that way because we could get caught so much into our sins and what we've done in our past, in our failures, in our mistakes. We could get so caught up in the wrong things that we've done that we forget what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We are valuable to God. We are his inheritance. And Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts would be open to that fact. Here's the third thing Paul prays for is that the eyes of our heart would be open to God's power at work in you. Look again at verse 19. It says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? See, what Paul is praying here is that we would know how much power is at work in us and through us. And the greatness and the nature of that power is measured by the resurrection. Now, see, if I were trying to tell somebody uh, how I could prove that God was super powerful, the one thing that I had to pick, I would pick creation. Because, I mean, think about it. Creating everything out of nothing, that seems pretty powerful to me. It seems like you couldn't get any more powerful than that. In one word, God spoke and the earth was formed. He made the heavens and the earth, the stars, the moon, the sun. You just can't get any more powerful than that. But Paul's like, no, there's an even greater power than that at work in us. And it's the power of the resurrection. Creating, creation may bring life out of nothing, but resurrection brings life back from the dead. You see, Paul is saying that God not only has this ability to make us into something, Take nobodies and make them into somebodies. He also has this power to take the bad lives, the sinful lives that we have, and turn them into good lives. And that's good news for some of us because for some of us, we've destroyed our life through terrible choices, addictions, relationships, and so many other things. And Paul is like, hey, if that's you today, if you feel like you've destroyed your life by all of the bad choices that you made, then good news. Not only can God speak things into existence, but God brought life out of death when, he rose, when Jesus rose from the grave, and he can bring life back into the mess of your life today. He can repair and restore what you have destroyed through sin. And no matter the things that we've done or what we're going through, you need to see the power at work in you and through you, working every situation for you to protect you and to accomplish God's will and purpose through you. There is no power on earth that can resist this. No wonder why Isaiah said, no weapon formed against me will prosper. All who rise against me will fall. Even in death, You've got the power of the resurrection. There's an Old Testament story in 2 Kings chapter 6 that I think kind of helps amplify and maybe um, bring more um, to Paul's point that he's trying to make here in Ephesians. But it's the story of Elisha and his servant. And as the story goes, uh, Elijah and his servant, they're in Israel. And all of a sudden, there's this great gigantic army that surrounds them. And the servant just starts freaking out. He's like, he runs over to Elisha and he's like, Elisha, do you see what's happening? Do you see this army that's going on surrounding us right now? They're going to kill us. They're going to destroy us. They're going to take us captive. What are we going to do? Now, anytime I read some stories in the Bible, I like to read between the lines a little bit. Like I like to kind of imagine what else is happening in the story. And so I kind of like to think Elijah might be singing a few psalms at that moment. You know, like he might be kind of making breakfast, not a care in the world right now. And the servant comes rushing in and telling him all this stuff. And maybe he just kind of was like, oh, 
the servant. And he does this. He says, God, would you open up his eyes? And the Bible tells us that God opens the servant's eyes. And all of a sudden, what's surrounding this gigantic army that's surrounding Elijah and the servant, there's an even greater angelic army that's surrounding that army. And here's the point of this story. See, when Elisha prayed, God didn't send his power in that moment. When Elisha prayed, God didn't send all the angels down in that moment. When Elisha prayed, God simply opened their eyes to the fact that he was already there. See, some of us, we don't need to pray for God's power. We just need to pray that God would open the eyes of our heart to the fact that it's already there. See, what some of us need today is not a fresh flood of power, What we need is a fresh vision to see the power that God has already provided. That's what Paul's praying for here. One other thing to kind of maybe make note of in this story, and maybe it seemed a little odd to you, it did to me, that uh, that the angels were in the uh, mountaintops above them and not in the valley with them. Now, I know for me, if I'm about to face a gigantic army, I'd like a lot of angels standing between me and that army. I don't know about you. But that's not what happens in this story here. And I think this is the reason why. Because a lot of times when we go through life, it's not that we don't end up doing battle with an army. It's not that we don't end up doing battle with an enemy. It's that we're supposed to be confident in the army that's watching over us. It's making sure that all is going according to plan. And that's a greater army than the one that's against us. See, sometimes we're going to go against and battle against cancer. And sometimes God doesn't stand between us and cancer. Sometimes God doesn't stand between us and joblessness or a bad marriage. But what we can be confident in is that the resurrection power of God's army is surrounding us, is even greater than the cancer that we're facing, the joblessness that we have, or anything else that we're going through. And he's able to take the bad things and turn them into good. Paul is saying that what we need isn't just fresh flood of power, but fresh vision. And that vision is going to come through the resurrection of Jesus. And so you might be thinking, well, what does this mean for my life? What does this resurrection show me about my life? Well, let me ask you, was there ever a time in history where it seemed like God was more out of control, that evil was winning and good was losing than at the cross? I think that's a pretty good time that it seemed like God was losing in that moment. Now, of course, we have hindsight, but what in that moment, what looked like everything was out of control, that evil was winning and good was losing, in that moment, God was very much in control, and he was using what looked like it was evil for good. And some of you, you're here today, and you need to look at your situation through the lens of the resurrection and say, you know what, even when things in my life look like they're out of control, even when it looks like the evil is winning in my life, I can be assured that the same God that brought Jesus out of the grave and brought resurrection power to him can turn the evil that's going on in my life and turn it for good. Because the resurrection changes how I see everything. And Paul's praying that we just get a new lens, a fresh vision to the power of Jesus and the resurrection. The fourth and final thing is that Jesus is building his church. Look with me at verse 22. It says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. 
What verse 22 is telling us is what's a big deal to God? What matters the most to God is not necessarily everything that's happening in Washington, D.C. or New York City or Wall Street or in Hollywood. If Paul was writing this in his time, it wasn't necessarily what was happening in Rome. Now, God does care about all of those things. He is over all those things. I could give you a lot of verses that would tell you that he cares and he's over all of that stuff. But what Paul is trying to say here is the thing that God cares the most about, the thing that is a big deal to God is what's happening inside of his church. It's the work that he's doing in the church. The church is the focal point of everything that God is doing in this world. And listen, if God is building his church, if that's what he cares the most about, Don't you think that should be our focal point as well? See, for Paul, it would be unbelievable to think that church was just an event that you attended on the weekend when it was the most convenient for you and all of that. To him, Paul, the church was a family that you belonged to, a place where you had your deepest relationships and to the thing that you were the most committed to. Listen, the church is the place that Jesus purchased with his blood. And it's the place with which God's power flowed. If Jesus cared so much about the church that he died for it, shouldn't you be deeply concerned about it too? And be deeply devoted to it. I hear people say this all the time. Well, a lot of problems in the church these days. There's a lot of things going on. I don't like this person. I don't like that person. I don't like this. I don't like that. You know, we're treating it like it's a consumer item here. Well, they don't do this and they don't do that. You know, there's a lot of hypocrites in the church these days. People have got a lot of problems in the church. And I would say, hey, do you think nobody knows it better than Jesus? Those problems cost him his blood. But he gave it gladly. Not just for other people's sins, but for your sins as well. See, if Jesus invested his blood into the church, you should invest the best of your time energy, and talents as well. See, the theme of kind of this year has been to make God's house our home. And so we want to give everybody opportunities to serve somewhere, to give the best of their their time and their energy. God's gifted you with gifts. And it's not just to use inside the church, but it's also in our community. But God has given you gifts. And so our Connect kiosk that's out in the lobby, we would love to connect with you and have you serve on a lot of teams that we need help with because the goal is to reach more people for Jesus. And the only way we reach more people is if we have more people. We, we have uh, black boxes here in the sanctuary and right outside the lobby. And the whole point is to reach more people, you got to have the resources to reach more people. And so some of you, we just need to take the step and be generous with what God has given us. We need to be faithful to the tithe. We talk about how groups are one of the most important things that we do as a church. And this weekend in particular, we have the opportunity for you to sign up for a group, to be a part of uh, one of our awakened groups that meets all throughout this city. And so in a moment here, the message will be done. We'll sing a song. You can go grab your kids and come back and just give 10 minutes and find a group a night of the week, a place that works best for you. Be committed to the people of God. Because listen, you'll be a blessing to somebody and somebody will be a blessing to you. 
If Jesus gave his blood for the church, we should be deeply devoted and committed to it as well. We shouldn't just come here when it's convenient, when it feels right, when whatever excuses we could come up with, we should be deeply devoted to the thing that Jesus gave his life for. We should care about it. And so let's start caring about it and taking action toward it. That's Paul's prayer. Ephesians chapter one. That concludes the book, or the the chapter rather. Ephesians chapter one, he prays that we would have the eyes of our heart open to these truths. That we would have the eyes of our heart open to the fact that we have a hope. That we are valuable to God. That there is a power in us and that Jesus is building our, his church and, he should, and we should be about it. We should be about building his church. And you might be thinking, well, you know what, all this sounds really great and awesome and all of that. But you know, how do I do that? What's the steps I need to take? But here's the thing. I, uh, here's the thing. The entire point of this passage, I don't think is a checklist or a to-do list because then it would be a set of instructions. But it's a prayer. It's a prayer that God would do this. It's not something we can will into existence. It's something that God has to will into existence. And so here in just a few moments, I'm going to pray this over all of us today in my own words. And listen, if you're struggling with prayer today, you don't know what to pray for. Let me tell you, this is a good start. Maybe you felt spiritually dry and bankrupt. This is a good start. How to start praying. Pray these things. And don't just pray it once and go, well, that was it. Didn't experience anything. No, you keep praying it. You keep praying it. You pray it over and over and over again. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.